you are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. People can have anorexia in any size body. And in fact, most people with anorexia are not in very low weight bodies. Most people with anorexia do not fit the stereotype of what somebody with anorexia looks like. I think people need to remember that we're treating symptoms and behaviors. We're not treating body size and that people can have anorexia in any size body. And we need to treat it the same way, not have one set of recommendations for people who are in a smaller body and a different set of recommendations for people in larger bodies. Hi, and welcome to this week's podcast. This week, you will hear the conversation that I had with Dr. Rachel Milner, who is a licensed psychologist. You might recognize the name because Rachel's been on the podcast before. The reason that I've invited her back is because I was sent an email by a mother in concern over her daughter, and she asked me to do a podcast episode on um, people with anorexia in higher weight bodies. And the first person that I thought to as a perfect person that I would want to talk to about this subject was Rachel Milner. And it's funny because I have since learned that at the Bida Nida conference in November, which I'm also going to, Rachel is presenting and the title of her presentation is Avoiding Assumptions, Diagnosis and Treatment of Anorexia Nervosa in Higher Weight Children and Adolescents. And I didn't know that before I decided to reach out and contact her as the person to talk to about people in higher weight bodies and anorexia nervosa. So that's a little bit of coincidence, but it also shows you where Rachel is at in the field of eating disorders and where her passion lies and what she knows a lot about. So without further ado, let's get on to this podcast. The first question that I asked Dr. Rachel Milner was to tell us a little bit about herself. Here's Rachel. The information in this podcast is general advice. It's not specific to the person who wrote the email because everybody's individual. Therefore, we can't give specific advice. So it's great to be back talking to you again. Um, I'm Rachel Milner. I'm a psychologist um, and certified eating disorder specialist. And I both work at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in their eating disorder assessment and treatment program, where I see kids and adolescents, um, primarily who have anorexia, um, doing FBT. And then I also have a private practice where I see adults who are struggling with all different forms of eating disorders. I thought you would be the perfect person to talk to um, about an email that I got from a mum who was remain anonymous, but she wrote to me she has a daughter who has an eating disorder, and mm-hmm. she explains that her daughter's not at a low weight, and her daughter lost her period, and when she wasn't even, or when I say not at a low weight, not sort of statistically in terms of what would be an average BMI or anything. So what would be perceived as a low weight? Possibly it could have been a low weight for that individual. But she mm-hmm. says, you know, her daughter lost her period when she wasn't a low weight. She had heart palpitations, malnutrition symptoms, headaches, acne, muscle issues. Couldn't remember anything. Dizzy, dizziness, confusion, cold all the time, hair loss. So all of the symptoms that we would assume for a person with anorexia. But mm-hmm. she says that, Every article that she's ever read talks about a low weight and every doctor that they've ever tried to see has said 
your daughter doesn't have anorexia because she's at a low weight. And I think this is something that's important to talk about. Yeah, it is such an important conversation because it's a story that happens over and over and over again, where people are presenting to doctors, to therapists, to dietitians with very clear symptoms of anorexia, but because they may be in a larger body, the diagnosis is completely missed. And she said, um, the lady that wrote in has, has also said that to sort of try and, and help her daughter with sort of these problems that she's experiencing, the doctors are suggesting that she diets and exercises, which I guess the mum who's done her research is, is saying, no, 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 like that's not going to help. <laughs> um, but right. it's still, you know, can you imagine being with a child who has anorexia and the doctor saying, you need to diet and ex- exercise. I mean, that's anorexia's dream. Right. It's horrifying. It's really horrifying. And it reminds me of the quote um, from Deb Burgard, who's a psychologist who works with people with eating disorders. And she says, um, we're prescribing for fat people what we diagnose as eating disorders in thin people. And I think that's such a, what you're describing that this mother wrote in about is an exact example, that if her daughter was in a smaller body, the doctors would pick up on the anorexia immediately. But because of the weight bias in the field and the stereotype that all people with anorexia are in a smaller body, the diagnosis is being missed. And not only being missed, but that symptoms of anorexia are being recommended to somebody mm-hmm. who has anorexia. Yeah, I really am I'm, I'm reading. I'm going to quote from what she wrote, wrote me here, which was a question she wrote. How do you send the overweight sort of recovered adult into this world. Every appointment, every ailment will be met with a weigh-in, blood tests, and the end result of being told to eat healthier and exercise. Yeah, it's really hard. I think that part of, you know, for adults, which I think is a little bit different for kids and adolescents, but for adults, I think part of it is the process of becoming empowered in your own recovery and unfortunately having to advocate for yourself because it's absolutely true that if you work walk into the average practitioner's office, they're going to ask to check your weight. And if by their BMI chart, they feel like your BMI is quote unquote too high, they feel like they have to intervene in some way. And that intervention is going to come down to some recommendation to lose weight through diet and exercise, which not only do we know that diet and exercise are harmful and don't promote weight loss anyway, but if you're talking about somebody who's in an eating in recovery from anorexia, you've now triggered the anorexia all over again. Mm-hmm. And so, so in this individual, she's she's written um, she's written to me that when her daughter began her eating disorder, she began by being told by doctors that her many minor edical, medical issues could be cured with weight loss, being told that her many minor medical issues could be cured with diet being told that her many minor medical issues could be cured with exercise and she was told to take control. And then she did that and she also gained a lot more um, complex medical issues. So can, can we sort of, for anybody that is thinking, well, how does this happen? How does a person have anorexia of a higher body weight? Because I know that a lot of people do not understand that that happens. How can we explain how that happens? Yeah. So, well, before I answer that, I just want to say clearly that I, when is the field in general, the healthcare field going to get that weight loss should not ever be an intervention or a recommendation? Amen. Um, I think that right there is what the, really the core of it, that that needs to be addressed first. 
Um, but in terms of the question about how can somebody in a larger body have anorexia, it's really because we're not diagnosing body size, we're diagnosing behaviors and symptoms. So body size really has nothing to do with an eating disorder, any eating disorder, whether we're talking anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, we're looking at what are the symptoms and the behaviors that somebody's engaging in. So if somebody's in a larger body and is restricting their nutritional intake and engaging in symptoms that meet the criteria for anorexia, they have anorexia. Mm -hmm. And they can still be in energy deficit in a larger body because they're not meeting their nutritional needs with their intake. Absolutely. And what we know from the little research that has been done on this is that typically people who start out in a larger body when they do present for treatment are more medically compromised. Because oftentimes when when they've initially started the symptoms of anorexia, they're being congratulated. If their weight is going down, they're being told, good job, way to go. So they're sicker longer, but prior to diagnosis, and mm -hmm. the amount of weight suppression tends to be higher. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people who have started out in a larger body can present for treatment at a BMI that is still in the quote unquote overweight or obese categories. And they are much more medically compromised because they're more weight suppressed than somebody whose BMI might feel, fall into the quote unquote underweight category. Because when we limit our intake, when we restrict our intake, our metabolism lowers in order mm -hmm. to the body's trying to sustain life. Right. <laughs> And if a person's in uh, their natural set point, whatever you want to call it, is on a mm -hmm. higher weight, if that person then restricts food, then they may lose some weight, but they would lose enough weight not to be put in classed as a low BMI or seen as underweight. But for that person, it still means that their metabolism is slow, that certain things within them are stopping, systems may be shutting down they're still in energy deficit. And I think that's really what is not understood. Right. I think that people have a very difficult time recognizing that size diversity exists, that people are meant to be all different size bodies. So there are people who are just meant to be in a larger body. And when they restrict and lose weight, even if they are still in a larger body, they are nutritionally malnourished and weight suppressed for them. So, but in order for people to understand that, they really have to get the idea that not all people are meant to be within the quote unquote normal BMI category, that we are meant to be diverse in terms of our body size. Yeah. And um, sometimes I feel, I mean, sometimes I do get quite overwhelmed with the amount of fat phobia that's, and I can't even say just in society, I'm talking about just in the medical field. Yes. It, it's just, it seems, it seems like a, a huge mountain to climb because I know under, very underweight people who are in treatment that have started eating a lot of food and have been told, oh, careful, you might get fat. More often than not, each day I have an email in my inbox from somebody telling me a story such as that. And yeah. so that's happening often. So if people in tiny bodies are being made to fear fat and being discriminated against in case they get fat before they've even started eating some of yep. the time. How on mm -hmm. earth do we expect people who are in larger bodies to be able to navigate this world? Right, exactly. They are walking around in a world that stigmatizes and oppresses them just because of their body size. 
And then you're asking somebody who's in a larger body and facing that kind of stigma and oppression to walk into a medical provider or a therapist's office and share that they think they have an eating disorder and they think they have anorexia. And they're going to be more often than not met with exactly what you described, which is the fat phobic response, the biased response and the negating of their own experience. We're not, as practitioners, we're not listening. We're not hearing people tell their own experience because the fat phobia gets in the way. Mm -hmm. And I know people who have been that brave and have gone to a treatment provider and said that and been been told, you can't possibly have anorexia. It's infuriating. It's, It's absolutely infuriating. And I think that we have so much work to do in the medical field and the healthcare field to address these things. And to recognize that our job is not to prevent fatness. Like fat people are going to exist. Fat people are meant to exist. And that our job is not to try to figure out a way to prevent people from getting fat. Our job is to help people get well. Yeah. And so, Rachel, I know that the mom who who emailed in will be listening to this. Yeah. What, what would you... I know that she also feels incredibly unsupported. I know that she feels that her daughter is loving it being told that she needs to exercise and diet because she's her anorexia loves it you know not the daughter's healthy brain obviously but the anorexia side so she she's battling with trying to also convince her daughter that this is not the right way she's battling with medical professionals I imagine she's just at her wits end Mm -hmm. what would you say to her yeah well first I would say that I'm really sorry that she's having to deal with this that it's hard enough to have a child with anorexia and figure out how to navigate the system to help them get well, and then to have to be faced with providers actually encouraging the anorexia is just infuriating and devastating. And I apologize on behalf of the entire field that she's having to deal with that. Um, I don't know the, the exact age of her child, but what I would say to her is that she knows best that as a mother, she can trust her instincts, and that if she knows that her child is not well, I think she also can rely on her instincts of what needs to be done to get her child well. And if healthcare providers aren't being helpful, then I would either seek out other healthcare providers and she could specifically look for people who are health at every size or haze informed, um, people who say that they practice from a weight inclusive perspective. And I think hopefully she would get some different information from a provider who's trained in that way. But if in her area she's not able to access providers like that, you know, no care is better than bad care. So if the care that she's getting is bad care, then she may decide to not go for care anymore and to really just work to get her daughter better on her own. I think also I would say to her that she can advocate on her daughter's behalf and you're allowed to refuse any aspect of treatment. So if she feels like she needs her daughter's vital signs to be monitored, but having her weight monitored in the doctor's office is not helpful, she can say, I don't want you to weigh my daughter. I would like for you to take her blood pressure and her pulse and her orthostatic vitals because we need that information. And I don't want her on the scale. And I do not want you to discuss weight or exercise or eating with her. You know, she can do that as a, as a mother. She can help her daughter learn to do that for herself over time. But I think that's really hard for kids and adolescents to do when they're in the midst of the illness. So I think the mom can advocate on her daughter's behalf in this case. Mm-hmm. 
I um, I'm just going to read you this. Uh, that was something that she wrote that she, as her message to to therapists, um, you'll need to start changing your thinking. You'll need to start changing your perception. You'll need to start using body positive practices. You'll need to use your coping skills to work through your own fat phobic perception. Yeah. Amen. I love, right that, on. I love that last yeah. bit. <laughs> She's that, I mean, that's the heart of it, right? That as providers, we have to deal with our own stuff. Like if we're going to be doing this work and we're going to be trying to help people, we've, I get it. We've all grown up in the same environment. We've internalized certain messages about weight and about health, but we have to deconstruct those things if we're going to be doing this work. And we have to be willing to look at our own internalized weight bias, our own internalized fat phobia. We have to be willing to look at our own behaviors. Like if you're dieting as a clinician, that's a problem. That is going to come Even if you don't ever say it in the room with your client, they are going to pick up on it. Because you're in that dieting mindset, which is promoting the idea that thinner is better. And clients will absolutely pick up on that. I love that you bring this up. I think if you want to treat people with eating disorders, you have to really work on your own presentation of self as well. Yeah. And if you have a problem doing that, then maybe just choose some a different career. Right. Absolutely. If you are not in a place where you can eat without restricting, where you can allow your body to be at whatever size it's meant to be at, where you're not deconstructing messages about weight and diet and exercise that are like all over the place in our culture, then it may not be the specialty for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, and that's okay, right? I mean, Absolutely. people are on their own path. Therapists and doctors are people too and have their own stuff. So it's not We're not saying that people can't have their own stuff. We're saying that if you're really struggling in this area, don't try to treat people who are struggling with the same thing you're struggling with. Now, I also know that there'll be people listening to this that are, it's not their parent, it's, or writing in that they'll be thinking, okay, this is me. This is the problem I have. I'm in a larger body. I restrict food. I, I have anorexia. I can't get anybody to understand. Yeah, I mean, I would have a really similar response that one, I can really empathize with how hard that is, what a difficult position that is to be in to know that you're struggling and suffering and to be in a place of wanting help and to be afraid to ask for it because of the very real stigma and oppression that you may face if you walk into a provider's office. Um, I would say do the research. There are good providers out there who are not promoting weight loss and not looking at diets and exercise that are really practicing from a weight inclusive perspective, who are fat positive and body positive and health at every size informed clinicians who would hear you and believe you and work with you to get well, having nothing to do with body size. But it takes more work. It takes the work of doing some research beforehand. And I wish that people didn't have to do that work. I wish that people could just walk into any provider's office and trust that they're going to be heard and listened to and that weight loss isn't going to be recommended. But unfortunately, we're not there yet. That's not the space that we're in now. And so I think if somebody's in a larger body and struggling with anorexia, they do need to do some more research before they go see 
a therapist or a medical provider. Because like I said before, I do, I think bad therapy is worse than no therapy. So I would rather somebody find a support system that doesn't include a therapist if the therapist that they're going to is going to be harming them. I couldn't agree more, Rachel. Yes, it's a good therapist, a good eating disorder specialist can be a godsend, can be a game changer, but a bad one can make things worse, can leave you in a a worse place than you started in. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the reality is with any of this, none of us can predict body size, right? Like we don't know what somebody's body is going to do. And so we've got to get away from even talking about it as though we can predict what's going to happen with somebody's body. Cause I think that's part of like this fat phobia that happens. And so we should be listening to all of our clients, no matter what body size they're in and hearing their stories and responding accordingly and not getting caught up in the focus on weight or quote unquote health or you know, activity and things like that. We get derailed by these conversations. They're not productive. It's completely ignoring the problem, really. And it's, it's. I think that's, that some, some um, practitioners are a bit like a dog with a bone. They just won't let it go and consider that there are other issues <laughs> that are more important that should be focused on. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. I think people, a lot of practitioners have been so focused on this for so long that they can't take a step back and say, wait a minute, what I'm doing is harming people. This isn't working. And I need to educate myself and practice from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the education, it's it's gonna, I do think it's going to take a a grassroots movement. I don't necessarily think it's going to come from the uh, medical profession at this point. But I, I do think that we can change things by talking about it and sharing information about it, trying to educate people. And also by using the people, the therapists that are understanding and that are adopting a weight neutral, size neutral approach, then I think, I hope that others will get the message. Yeah. And I I think you're right. I think we can change it. And I think it's changing. I mean, the fat activist movement has been strong for many years. There are a lot of fat activists who have been working on this stuff for a long time. And I do see changes that are happening in the field. Um, I can, I think that when these issues come up, so when examples of weight bias and fat phobia come up, I see a much stronger reaction in the field to them. So they're not just being accepted as yes, this is truth. People are pushing back more. There are more voices speaking out about these things. So I do think things are changing. I don't think they're changing fast enough. And I think, unfortunately, the weight bias, the fat phobia is still the norm in the field. But I think it's changing. And I think that over time, we will see even more change happening. I do hope so. So one other thing that was in this email that she wrote me was, Mm -hmm. instead of 10% under BMI or 10% over BMI, we need guidelines based on state, not weight. Yes. Yay. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right? Like it doesn't, if somebody's state is not good, it doesn't matter what their weight is, right? Like the weight is not the defining factor of wellness or health. So if somebody's BMI is in the quote unquote overweight category 
and they're still having anorexic thoughts and cognitions and behaviors and rituals, then we need to address it and they probably need to be gaining weight. Like, so we need to be really hearing and looking at what's going on for that individual and address their state and not their weight. I mean, the person who sent this email is so right on with so many things. And I know you had said she wanted to remain anonymous, which of course I respect, but it also, I would like to say to her that she has a really powerful voice. And if at some point she feels like she's in a place to speak out more publicly, I think she has a lot of really important things to say and things that need to be heard. Yes, actually, she did, she did write to me before and say that at some point she's going to write a mummy warrior um, book. And I thought, yeah, that would be great. The more books like that, the the better that are actually. This is real life and this is what happens. Absolutely. And look, parents have changed the eating disorder field dr- tremendously over you know the past however many years. Like if you just look at the shift in treatment for kids and adolescents to an FBT model, that was parents leading that fight. So parents have a lot of power and parents can create change in this field. So I hope she does decide to write the book and I hope at some point she feels like she can just speak out publicly. Can we just have a couple of seconds of gratitude for Rachel Milner? The woman is like the antidote to fat stigma. Love it. Thank you to Rachel for talking to me today. If you want to find out more about Rachel, I will link to her information in the show notes to this episode. And you can also go to the Beda Nida conference, which is in New York in November this year, right at the beginning of November. I'll be there. I'm talking about podcasting with Laura Collins, Lister Mensch and Catherine Cortez. But if you're interested in finding out more about what Rachel Milner has to say about anorexia nervosa in people in higher weight bodies, then... She is also presenting there, so check out the schedule and see if you can get yourselves along. And just like the person who inspired this episode today, remember you can write to me and tell me what you want to hear about. Email address is info at tabithafarad.com or you can tweet at me. My Twitter handle is at love underscore fat underscore. Today's topic was one that was massively important to me and I'm so thankful for you know who you are who wrote in and asked that question and then also contributed to this podcast by sending in detail experiences that you've had and problems that you've come across such an important topic it's not spoken about enough but let's change that start talking about it thank you thanks for listening Hey, listen, just one more note. If you are a person struggling with an eating disorder yourself, if you're a parent of somebody with an eating disorder, if you're an eating disorder advocate, or if you're just somebody that gives a shit, take this podcast about how a person in a larger body can have anorexia, but more importantly, about all of the aspects of weight stigma in eating disorder treatment and the world in general, and send it to your treatment provider so that they can listen and maybe they can understand because we're going to have to educate from the ground up and this stuff is important. Keep your questions coming and help us educate the people that need to hear it.